As we pick up in the book of First Corinthians, we have encountered a church that is definitely not without problems. Now, that being said, every church has problems, right? I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect church. Churches are both beautiful and ugly at the same time because they're filled with people like us, people who are saints and sinners at the same time. Now, this particular church in Corinth was planted by Paul roughly five years before he wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians. And ever since Paul left Corinth about five years earlier, he's heard some troublesome news. Last week, Paul addressed the problem of division within the church. But we also saw that division wasn't the real disease. It wasn't the root issue. Division was just the symptom. It was just the result of the real problem, of the real disease in that church. And the real problem was that the Corinthians had abandoned the truth that their salvation rests in Christ crucified. Christ crucified alone, even if that message sounds foolish to their fellow Greeks. But on top of that, they've also forgotten that God is the true source of wisdom, not the most impressive speakers with the latest, greatest ideas of earthly wisdom, no matter how eloquent or lofty their speech may be. And so for Paul, the solution is pretty simple. Return to the core message they heard from the beginning, that message of Christ crucified. Return to the eternal wisdom that comes only from God through his Holy Spirit. Because then, and only then, will God's people have the same mind, the same judgment, instead of being ruled by division. But the problems in Corinth don't stop there. Just like the problems in local churches today don't stop there either. Paul's heard much of this from Chloe's people, perhaps some of the few Christians left in Corinth who still respect Paul's leadership. And those reports from Chloe and her people include another problem that threatens to destroy the church from the inside out. And just like back then, the same sin issue threatens the health and the public witness and even the survival of local churches today. It could even affect a church like ours. So open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, feel free to follow along and take that Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together as we jump into 1 Corinthians 5. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, as we live in a world that it seems like every single week there is something else that is terrifying happening in the world. Uh, there is so much instability. There is so much uncertainty, whether it's at home or whether it's abroad. Uh, Father, I pray that every single Sunday as we come here, we would be reminded of your faithfulness, of your stability, of the fact that we can trust you regardless of what kinds of circumstances are happening around us. Father, thank you for your son who lived and died and rose and ascended and will return. And nothing else that happens in this world can change that or can thwart that. So, Father, again, give us humble hearts and open minds as we read your word this morning. Let us hear the things that we need to hear, whatever those might be, whether it's encouragement or challenge or conviction or reminder, whatever it is that you have for us. Just help us to receive it well this morning. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word that we have the privilege of reading. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. 
Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So as Paul begins to identify the next major problem in Corinth, he doesn't leave a whole lot to the imagination, does he? According to Paul, there is blatant, unrepentant sexual sin within the church, specifically in the form of a man sleeping with his father's wife. The language of the passage indicates that this was not just a one-time thing. This was an ongoing public affair. Now, it is important to consider the context of the ancient world in which they lived, because that will help us better understand the specific situation that Paul is talking about. So, number one. This was not the father's first wife. In all likelihood, this is a second or third wife that this man has married. On top of that, this was not the sinful man's mother. Okay, let's just get that out of the table. It's not his mother. This is a woman identified as his father's wife. He's technically not related to her. If it was his mother, the passage would have said it was his mother. And in all likelihood, this man was sleeping with his stepmother, who was much closer to his age than to his father's age, with the way the ancient world worked. So while the situation might not be as icky as you initially think when you read the passage, it doesn't change the fact that this is still a grave sin that must be addressed. And for Paul, this man, a member of the church in Corinth, is guilty of something offensive to God Offensive to his fellow believers and even offensive to the surrounding society at large, because not only was this against Jewish law, but it was also against Roman law as a form of incest. Even though they're not technically related by blood, Roman law would have made this illegal. And the thing is that if even the Corinthians look at what you're doing and say it's wrong and say it's inappropriate, If even the Corinthians think that what you're doing is out of bounds, then it's probably a good idea for you to think again about your actions, to think again about this relationship. But as if that's not all bad enough, and it's bad, it's an awful situation. What maybe make things even worse, and what Paul may be even more frustrated about with the Corinthians, is that their church has done absolutely nothing. To address the situation. They've done absolutely nothing. It's not a secret that this is happening within the church. Everyone knows about it. Again, it's ongoing. It's public. And yet the Christians in Corinth appear to be either A, ignoring it, B, kind of sort of condoning it, or C, maybe even celebrating it. That's a problem. Paul makes it clear that they ought to be grieving over this sin. They ought to be mourning over this sin. They ought to be ashamed of this sin within their church. They ought to be fearful for their brother's status with God, his spiritual state. They ought to be addressing it with him. And yet they are arrogant is what Paul says. So what is Paul, their spiritual father? He identified himself as that in chapter four. What is Paul going to tell them to do? Well, he tells them to remove this man 
from among them. In other words, he tells the church to excommunicate him. So, Paul is addressing a problem that most of the Corinthian Christians didn't seem to think was a problem. That's a big problem, right? When someone has a problem and they don't want to admit that they have a problem, or that they naively tell themselves that it's not really a problem, well, that's where the Corinthians are. So you have to ask, why in the world would they not see how awful this situation is? Why in the world would these Christians not address this problem? Well, maybe for some of the same reasons that churches today are tempted to sweep issues of sexual sin under the rug. Maybe they don't want to address it because it's simply awkward and uncomfortable to talk about it. So let's just ignore it. Maybe they don't want to be labeled as prudes or backwards or even bigots. And so they just pretend it's not there. Maybe they don't want to hurt the man's feelings. Maybe they have a view of sin that is severely lacking. Instead of being mourning over the fact that this man is offending God and offending the surrounding community, they justify it by saying, well, you know what? He's not hurting anyone. So why don't we just let it slide? Maybe the man was a big financial giver at the church and they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. Or maybe the Corinthians simply didn't care. But whatever the reason for their poor handling of this situation, they have forced Paul's hand. Because if the Corinthians won't address the problem, Paul will. And that it will certainly be painful in the short term. The long term survival of this local church is at risk. Therefore, Paul must take action as their shepherd. Let's pick up in chapter five, verse three. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So with that whole excommunication thing in verse two, remove this man from among you. Paul apparently wasn't just venting some frustration. He wasn't just trying to scare them. When Paul said that, he really meant it. He doesn't just suggest it. He doesn't just advise it. He commands the Corinthians to kick this man out of their church. Now, we hear that and we think, wait a minute, isn't that harsh? Isn't that cruel? Isn't that unloving? Paul's command stings our modern ears. But as harsh as it sounds and as difficult as it will be, which surely Paul understands, he also firmly believes that this must be done for both the good of the man and for the good of the church. The goal is not to punish this man. The ultimate goal is to bring him to repentance of his sin, 
to reconciliation with God and reconciliation with his fellow believers and to eventually restore him into the community. This seemingly harsh treatment, and indeed it does look harsh, is ultimately for this man's good. But it's for the good of the church in the sense that others may be tempted to fall into the same sin if this goes unaddressed. Sin like this is cancerous within a church. And if you don't take it seriously, it will spread before it's too late. The old saying is somewhat true that one bad apple really could ruin the whole cart. This must be addressed to save the church's reputation in the community. The Greeks who disapprove of this man's actions are the same Greeks who desperately need to hear the church's message of Christ crucified. Therefore, if this church continues to offer safe harbor to this sin, why would the Greeks take them seriously when they talk about the problem of sin? When they talk about how sin was so terrible and so debilitating that Christ had to die for it. Why would the Greeks take this church seriously if they didn't address sin within their own community? They would have no credibility left and their outreach would be pointless. You might compare this to that situation of a family who, because of such severe unruliness or addiction or destruction, ultimately has no choice but to cut a child off. Now, if you haven't been in that boat yourself, I assume that you know someone who has been in that boat. A decision like that is heart-wrenching. A decision like that feels wrong. But deep down, you know that it has to be done for the good of the child. And it has to be done for the good of the family. And it's done in hopes that this rock-bottom, absolute last resort, will be the thing that finally helps that child come to their senses finally helps them come to repentance and reconciliation and eventually restoration. Paul mentions that Christ has been sacrificed as our Passover lamb. Again, back to that same message, Christ crucified, the wisdom and power of God. Christ crucified has ushered in new hearts and new minds and as a result, new lives for those who believe. The old has gone, the new has come. And this is to be seen nowhere better than in the members of the local church. And bringing in the new means getting rid of the old before the old contaminates everything else around it. Now, again, you can't help but ask, how could this have happened? How could this situation have arisen? How could these sanctified saints remember chapter one? Sanctified saints, people enriched by God in all speech and all knowledge, not lacking any spiritual gift. How could these people have let something like this happen? How could they have let something like this go unaddressed for so long? Well, in the same way that a false understanding of wisdom led to division, there was a deeper cause which led to this problem as well. And that cause echoes today in our culture And all too often, it even echoes in our churches as well. For that, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. 
food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the reason that such blatant, public, unrepentant sin could go unaddressed at the church in Corinth is because the Christians there bought into a lie that is alive and well today. It's the lie that our physical bodies really don't matter as much as our souls. Many people back then and many people today view the physical body like it's nothing more than a prison, nothing more than a shell of who we really are. And that, of course, is our soul. And for the Christians in Corinth, as well as Christians today, this false belief, believing this lie, has absolutely terrible consequences. Now, sure, I may do all the same things with my body that unbelievers do with theirs, but deep down, I'm actually very spiritual in my soul. Sure, I may do things with my body that reject God's good created order and bring shame to the cause of Christ and eviscerate the church's distinctiveness from the world. But deep down, I'm actually very spiritual. Sure, it may appear that I prioritize my physical lusts above everything else. But deep down, I promise I love God more. It's just kind of hard to see sometimes. Well, contrary to popular belief back then. And popular belief today, your body and what you do with it matters to God. Your body and what you do with it matters to God. Why? Well, a few reasons. Number one, in verses 12 through 20, your body belongs to God. He created it. None of us is the master of our own existence. We are not self-sufficient. We are not independent. We are not autonomous. The only reason any of us is here is because the God of the universe knit us together in our mother's womb. Our body belongs to God. And if you're a follower of Christ, of course, your body belongs to Christ himself. We're talking about Jesus, who lived in a physical body, died in a physical body, rose in a physical body, ascended in a physical body, sits at God's right hand right now in a physical body, and will return one day in a physical body. And every single part of that was done and is done and will be done for you. Every single part of you. All of you. Not just your soul, but your body as well. And on top of that, God raised Christ's body from the grave. 
Apparently, some of the Corinthians said, well, you know what? God's going to destroy my body anyway one of these days when he saves my soul. So why does it really matter what I do with my body? And Paul says, now, hold on. Wait a minute. God raised Christ's body. And unless Christ returns first, one day he's going to raise your body from the grave as well. To the salvation that Christ earned for you or to the judgment that you earned for yourself. And finally, your body matters because the Holy Spirit resides in your body. Remember chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where Paul described the collective church as the temple of the Holy Spirit? Well, here he describes your individual physical body as a temple of the Holy Spirit as well. So does God care what you do with your body? Yes, he does. Does God care what that man does in the bedroom with his father's wife? Yes, he does. Does God care what those other Corinthian believers were apparently doing with prostitutes? Yes, God cares. Does God care what you're doing with that person that you're not married to? Yeah, God cares. Does God care what you do with your body when you're all alone and the Internet connection is pretty good? Yeah, God cares. Because you are not your own. Because you were bought with a price. And that price was not cheap. That price required Christ's body. Broken on the cross. Blood flowing on the cross. That's the price that you were bought for. So glorify God with your body. You simply can't separate what you do with your body from how spiritual you claim to be. You can't separate the two things. And the church in Corinth and the church today should care what its members are doing with their bodies. But all too often we let it slide out of outright rebellion or pathetic apathy or simply cowardice because we don't want to say anything. But the beauty of the gospel is that Christ was crucified for every single part of you, all of you. And the greatest joy that you will ever find is giving all of yourself for the glory of God. And that includes your body. Now, of course, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Many people in the ancient world viewed Corinth as the place to go for sexual liberation and sexual freedom. And there are lots of people who view our country in the same way today. And all too often, we Christians have found ways to justify simply going along with it. Whether it's because we're scared to say something, because we don't want to hurt people's feelings, because we want young people to keep coming to our churches, and we don't want big givers to leave. All kinds of reasons that we justify going along with the tide. But eventually, many will realize that the lie of sexual freedom, it can't offer the joy It can't offer the meaning. It can't offer the fulfillment that it promises. It simply won't deliver. And when those times inevitably come, the body of Christ must have the credibility and the distinctiveness left to offer something better. To offer Christ crucified. Now, sexual ethics, as presented in Scripture, aren't easy to accept today. But take heart, they weren't easy to accept back then either. 
And on top of that, no one ever said that living as God's people would be easy. I mean, we do worship a guy who compares following him to taking up a cross. Remember that? And while the Bible's teachings on sex can certainly be tough to swallow, they offer the greatest joy, the greatest fruitfulness, and the greatest purpose that anything ever will. In chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, Paul makes it clear that we as followers of Christ, we as the church, shouldn't be surprised when those outside of the church reject what God has to say about sexual sin. We shouldn't isolate ourselves. We shouldn't build bunkers from non-believers who think and believe differently than we do, who reject what God has to say about sex. We love those people. We serve those people. We show them in our own lives that there really is a better way. The same way we love and serve swindlers or the greedy or idolaters. Because according to Paul, those sins matter too. Sexual sin is not the only sin. But inside the church... Amongst the family of God, we must refuse to sit back and watch as our brothers and sisters in Christ destroy themselves through sexual sin, even if that means the last resort that Paul commands in the case of the sinful man. Robert Gagnon writes, love and discipline are not mutually exclusive concepts. If one fails to correct another who is engaged in self-destructive or community destructive behavior, or any conduct deemed to be unacceptable by God, one can hardly claim to have acted in love, either to the perpetrator or to others affected by the perpetrator's actions. Without a moral compass, love is mere mush. That last sentence is important. Without a moral compass, love is mere mush. In other words, we can claim that we're loving someone, by not saying something. But really, that's the most unloving thing that we could do. Paul could not sit back and not say something to these Corinthians because he loved them too much. Paul owed it to them, and Paul owed it to God, and we owe it to each other to be loving enough to say something. To love our brother or sister in Christ more than we love our comfort. Or our lack of awkwardness. Now that being said, will there be sin within the church? Of course there will be. There will always be sin within the church until Christ returns. There is no such thing as a pure church because we're still waiting for the power of sin and the power of Satan to be defeated once and for all. But I pray that we would never be content to give safe harbor to blatant, unrepentant, and public sin amongst those of us who call ourselves believers. The problem is not that we wrestle with sin. We all do. Every single one of us wrestles with sin. The problem arises when we stop wrestling, when we stop fighting it, when we simply are content to let sin win. And it's not loving towards God. And it's not loving towards that person. And it's not loving towards those who don't believe in the gospel for us to not say something. Now, most of the Corinthians probably didn't want Paul to say all that stuff, right? A lot of the Corinthians probably wanted him to just turn a blind eye, don't rock the boat, leave them to chase even their most sinful desires like some of their other spiritual guides 
may have done. But again, Paul was not content to be the shepherd that these Corinthians wanted. Paul's job was to be the shepherd that these Corinthians needed. And likewise, it is not my job. It is not the elder's job to be the shepherd that you want, but to be the shepherds that you need. And it's not our job to be the church that the world wants. It's our job to be the church that the world needs. And settling for anything less than that would be a disservice to God, a disservice to you, and a disservice to those we hope to reach. Brothers and sisters, you were bought with a price. And that price was not cheap. Christ gave up his body for yours. Therefore, what you do with your body matters to God. It matters to Jesus who died for you. It matters to the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. It matters to the shepherds of this church. It matters to your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. And what you do with your body even matters to those outside of this church who haven't yet believed. And because that price was so great, may we glorify God with our bodies. May we glorify God with our bodies because our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for them. And may we glorify God with our bodies because that will offer more joy than anything the world can offer. When it comes to our bodies, we were bought with a price. Let's glorify God with every single part of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. That again, doesn't always give us the things that we might want, but your word always give us gives us the things that we need. I pray that you would humble us under the authority of your word, that we would submit ourselves to the authority of your word, that we wouldn't just love your word in the sense of studying it or reading it or memorizing it, but that we would be willing to submit to it, even when that's hard. Father, thank you that while every single one of us is guilty of great sin, Every single one of us was bought with a price. So, Father, I pray that we would not take for granted the price that was paid. I pray that we would honor God with every single part of who we are. Not just our souls, not just our minds, not just some disembodied persons, but every single part of us. Our whole identities would be devoted to your glory. Because doing that, God, is not just some duty or some responsibility that we have, but it is also the greatest joy that we could ever find. Thank you for paying that price for our bodies. I pray that as we leave here, as we live in this world that is confused and always looking for the latest, greatest idea about what our bodies are all about and what can offer the greatest joy and the greatest fulfillment and the greatest freedom, I pray that we wouldn't be enslaved to sin, because it can't deliver what it promises. Thank you again for your son who died for us. Thank you for your word that we read this morning. Thank you that we were bought with a price. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.